What wants to emerge? This is the question we've been asking here at Buddhist Geeks, looking forward to the next year. And I wanted to share that a few things have come up for us as the most important response to this inquiry. I invite you to check out more about these three areas of focus for us next year and to support us if you're able at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. The three things that we're focusing on most clearly next year are one, we're reimagining the Buddhist Geeks podcast, moving to a new format and to a new season-based approach. We're also growing the Buddhist Geeks dojo, our cloud-based sangha, our training community of now 200 people who are practicing together and exploring together online. And the third thing is we're launching an entirely new training program called Meditate.io that is designed to connect the breadth of folks being introduced to meditation through things like smartphone apps to the depth of training that's possible traditionally only through wisdom traditions like Buddhism. So this is a secular program aimed at helping people move from practicing a short amount of time each day and getting the some of the initial benefits of meditation to going deeper and seeing some of the more profound results of meditation in their own lives. So if any of these projects sound interesting, you want to learn more about them. And if you're able to support this and support our work, this takes a huge amount of time, effort, financial resources to get these things off the ground in a way that honors the really deep heart behind them. And so your support is deeply appreciated and deeply needed. You can find out more again at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What's the sound of one geek giving? Find out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. I'm here with uh, Caroline Contillo. I hope I got that right. It's Contillo, but I respond to either. <laughs> it, it, does it have a, a Hispanic background or is it um, my or? It's Italian and my understanding Italian. is that it was shortened as we came through Ellis Island. Okay. Probably from something a bit longer. It's amazing to think of the number of things that get shortened or lost when going mm-hmm. through Ellis Island. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because, uh, you know, when Facebook first started, I would get friend requests from other Contillos, um, and they would invariably be um, living in the Philippines and kind of asking if I was um, a family member of theirs. And I would kind of respond, well, maybe in the, in the general sense of us all being um, part of the human family. But uh, yeah, no, I think different, different family trees there. But yeah, it is really interesting to think also, you know, what we draw from what somebody's last name is and kind of making uh, identification there. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, before we kind of let it rip, uh, which I guess is already starting to happen. Um, l- let me just say for those that are kind of following along in this conversation um, that I I met you I think on Twitter, mm-hmm. and yep. um, and we and we've been sort of uh, connected on there for for a while now. And 
Um, tell me your Twitter handle again. Is it Space Crone? Currently, it's Space Crone. For a while, it was I am Caroline, and I feel the more that I was practicing Buddhism, the more I felt like, well, am I? Um, just kidding, sort of. Uh, so I changed it to Space Crone recently um, based on an Ursula K. Le Guin uh, essay. It's uh, only a couple pages her idea was that um, if we were going to be sending an envoy for all of humanity into space to meet um, with other beings, she thought uh, an elderly woman would be kind of the best example of humanity. She would have lived kind of the full experience and probably be kind of humble about it. Uh, And she talks about how threatening the idea of the post-fertile woman is. So while I'm not necessarily a crone in age, I like to think that uh, I'm a, a crone in in spirit and definitely of the of the space variety. <laughs> awesome, and and it's funny because of the things you just mentioned. There's several in there that uh, compelled me to reach out and want to want to talk to you. Um, yeah, I mean, one one thing that I that I'm curious to explore, and we, we talked a little bit before you know starting this conversation about. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of weeks ago about um, mindfulness. That's definitely something to be fun to to loop back to mm-hmm. and, and maybe explore a bit. Um, but you know, also I think it's your set of interests that I'm really curious about. Um, both your interest, it sounds like, in interesting literature, and mm-hmm. also um, you know, in, ver- in it sounded like you studied in college uh, feminist theory, at least part of it. Uh, and so there's some interesting stuff there that'd be fun to to, to kind of touch on as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what else do you want to talk about? I guess recently I've been having kind of a renewed interest in um, activism and kind of the intersection of Buddhism and activism. I did a really cool training with the Buddhist Peace Fellowship here. And they came to New York and they did a direct action training that was really interesting. Um, Yeah, I'm interested in kind of, there's this, for me, there's this interesting kind of triangle of like mindfulness, improv, comedy, and science fiction um, that when I when I say it like that, it sounds a little bit like uh, what could those possibly have in common? But I think there's definitely some overlap there. Um, yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, let's let's start with the one that I think will be easiest to start with. Well, <laughs> I, I was going to say science fiction. I actually might be the easiest, but maybe, yeah. maybe mindfulness. Um, well, I think you know what I think science fiction would actually be maybe a good window into this conversation because it was. Definitely something I was interested in before I came to mindfulness. I only really started practicing mindfulness maybe about eight years ago. Um, but before that, I mean, when I was I was uh, in fourth grade and with two other girls who didn't really like going out and playing kickball during lunch, we started the girls' um, science fiction book club uh, in my grade school. So that was my that was my escape. I just loved. I loved science fiction, and I think um, that's been kind of a common thread throughout my life. Uh, And it's interesting. I see this relationship between mindfulness and science fiction in this. um, I think about the way that Thich Nhat Hanh defines on the Eightfold Path, the second is right intention. But he kind of, when he talks about it, he calls it right thought. And so I think of that almost as um, the syntax of our thought, the language we use for thought. So how does a science fiction author kind of create a new world, not necessarily from scratch, but they're definitely doing some improvising there. Um, How do they do that? How do they have this syntax of thought that kind of opens them up to possibilities rather than 
um, shutting possibilities down. Uh, so I think that was kind of how I took this thing that at first felt um, kind of indulgent. Like I just like to escape into science fiction. Um, and then it, it started to become uh, how do we imagine kind of new new futures, different possibilities. Um, so that's that's kind of the overlap I see with mindfulness. But yeah, science fiction is great. What were some of your favorite um, your favorite novels in the sci-fi genre? Sure. I mean, I grew up really loving Ray Bradbury. I think I must have read The Martian Chronicles, um, you know, regularly, probably like once a month in, in fourth, fifth grade. Um, there were other kind of... Uh, almost like that dystopian, uh, genre. Uh, there was the girl who owned a city. I think it was not quite science fiction, but kind of a scenario where all the adults had died and the kids were running everything. Mm. Um, when I was, you know, when I was in grade school, that was kind of my interest. I moved on to, um, William Gibson, maybe in high school was um, just read everything that he wrote. Um, the hitchhiker's guide, uh, yeah, I got really into, again, this veers more into fantasy than science fiction, but um, the whole uh, Sandman uh, graphic novel chronicle. Um, and then I would say probably in my 20s, I started getting really interested in Ursula K. Le Guin, Octavia Butler. Uh, yeah, I think those those are some of my favorites. That's so interesting. I, I know of all the ones you mentioned, but it's almost like we had a parallel science fiction track because mm-hmm. um, I, I didn't read almost any of the ones that you just mentioned, although I was aware of them. Uh, I was more into like Asimov and Tolkien. And, mm. um, and those are the ones I wasn't reading, was aware of, but like was not actually reading. That's okay. interesting. Okay. Well, this is going to be an interesting conversation. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I, I'm not sure why those were the authors that I didn't necessarily get into, um, but I'm trying to think of what was kind of guiding me. It was, I mean, it was pretty much anything. I was a voracious reader. It was pretty much anything I could get my hands on. Um, and definitely at first there was that escapist quality. I just wanted to escape into a world. Anybody who could kind of do really interesting world building for me um, that I could really enter into, that was what I was interested in. Um, and as I got a little bit older, oh, Philip K. Dick is another one where I remember uh, now it's an Amazon series, but uh, Man in the High Castle my father gave me a copy of it um, probably around sixth or seventh grade. And I was just like, who is this guy? Yeah. And I think we talked a little bit last time about um, Robert Anton Wilson. So he did the Illuminatus trilogy, um, which almost like I love it, but uh, I don't know. It's almost, it veers almost too much into satire for me. Um, I like, I like those kind of alternative histories or, when an author takes something and just runs with it, like the way that Ursula K. Le Guin with her, um, gosh, I can't remember the name of the book, but there's one where people only have a gender when um, they're mating, essentially. So she took this idea and built a whole world around it. So taking something that naturally um, kind of exists for us as a, as a story or narrative, um, tweaking something a little bit and seeing what would happen. Right. I think that's almost maybe a... Uh, and overlap with mindfulness as well, kind of this using the scientific method almost to see what would happen when the causes and conditions are altered a little bit. 
Yeah, that's interesting. A couple of things came to mind as you're talking there. One is um, how for me too, you know, reading was a way to become totally absorbed in a in a new world, mm-hmm. and it's like a world. It's a thought world. It's a feeling world. It's you know, but it feels real to some degree to be inside the story. And yet there can be, yeah, that escapist feeling of like, I, I, right. I'd rather be in this world than in the world that I that I am normally inhabiting. There's something mm-hmm. about that world that seems or feels somehow not as interesting or um, good. Mm-hmm. And, yep. and, that's, and that's, you know, to think about, you know, the young geeks, you know, the young geeks who are, <laughs> who, you know, use, use in a way, use books and reading um, to... To cope with uh, d- difficulty, um, yeah. I mean that's that's a real common pattern, probably. Oh yeah, definitely. And I think um, using it to escape. You know, I didn't, I didn't really like school starting at a very young age. Whether I was understimulated, overstimulated, I don't know. But definitely escaping from. I would would I was one of those students who would get in trouble for you know reading under my desk all the time. Um, would look for excuses to go to the library, things like that. It definitely had an escapist quality. And maybe that's why the type of um, science fiction that I've been interested in has changed a little bit over the years, because I think it's possible that meeting that with a mindfulness practice, I started to look at, um, well, there are the ways that I'm kind of trying to manipulate my experience or escape from it. So what is it that science fiction could actually show me about the way things actually are? And I think that's something I really like about Ursula K. Le Guin's work. Um, It's, you know, a radically different um, society or planet or whatever that she's writing about. But um, that kind of contrast with the way things actually are can kind of teach you about. And I think this is interesting because she, you know, she came from an anthropological background. I think both of her parents were anthropologists. So what are these stories that we take for granted about why things are the way they are on planet Earth and kind of uh, deconstructing them to the point of seeing that they are stories and that a science fiction writer could be constructing a different story? Um, I find that kind of fascinating. Yeah. Okay. This is, this is interesting because it, it feels like story, which... I mean, is another word for narrative, but I think narrative sounds a lot more philosophical and kind of <laughs> abstract. But, you mm-hmm. know, story, I mean, one of my favorite Dharma books is a book called The World is Made of Stories. Yes, um, that's a great one. And there's a, there's a quote from there that I just pulled up when, as you're talking about stories. And, and David Loy ta- talks about this in an interesting way. He said, if delusion is awareness stuck in attention traps and enlightenment liberates awareness... Does the spiritual path involve finding the correct story or getting rid of stories or learning to story in a new way? Mm-hmm. And I think about that with, um, so Robert Anton Wilson, he's a science fiction writer, but he was also writing nonfiction. He has this great book called, um, it was called uh, Quantum Psychology. And he was kind of using a lot of different models of the mind that were kind of fringe at the time to discuss human psychology. Um, and one of his big themes was the idea of reality tunnels. And so that each person through a combination of genetics and nature, nurture, experience, um, whatever is happening with them at the time uh, is going to be experiencing different uh, reality tunnels. And so is he had the same question, is the point to... Um, get rid of reality tunnels altogether. Uh, I think 
he kind of advocated a little bit of a gentler moving towards even noticing that you are experiencing things with a lens or a reality tunnel. I think that's where you start. Um, but he, yeah, he was really into this idea of also being able to kind of see, maybe use some empathy, think about what somebody else's reality tunnel at that moment is, see how certain reality tunnels meeting and trying to have a conversation is always going to be um, kind of adversarial. So I think ultimately, and I think I've seen this reflected in uh, Buddhist teachings as taught by people like Venerable Rubina Curtin, she says, you know, the idea might be to pick which stories or narratives or reality tunnels are going to be more useful to you. So you have to think about intention there. Um, so what's your intention? If my intention is using um, the Buddhist model to um, recognize my interdependence and maybe be more compassionate to myself and others, then what are the stories that are going to help me do that? So I also think I've seen people ask Venerable Rubina Curtin about enlightenment. You know, can I, can I still live in New York City and um, watch Netflix and become enlightened? And she's like, why don't you start with seeing if you can um, change your mind just a little. Start adjusting towards seeing things as they are rather than trying to jump in the next six months straight to enlightenment. Okay, so this is really interesting. So this phrase, seeing things as they are, mm. that's like a very common phrase in the, mm -hmm. in the Buddhist world. And um, it carries such a profound authority, mm -hmm. um, seeing things as they are. You know, it's like, it, it, you know, sort of presumes that we don't normally see things as they are. We're seeing right. things some other way than they are. Um, and then, and then to, to contrast that with what you're talking about with, uh, you know, Robert Anton Wilson's uh, phrase that reality tunnels, um, who also, you know, the, the, what I knew him for wasn't science fiction, was uh, NLP, mm -hmm. neuro-linguistic programming, which is a crazy methodology, you know, methodology yeah. of how to actually change, you know, your experience or conditioning in certain mm -hmm. ways that's powerful. Um, but yeah, there, th those things seem to be, uh, there seems to be a contradiction in, in, in those two ways of looking at things. Because on the one hand, a reality tunnel to me is, you know, if, if, if I'm in a reality tunnel, everyone's in a reality tunnel. Sure. Um, yep. And yet saying things as they are is to sort of, it feels to me it's to, to point to some way of experiencing reality that isn't in a reality tunnel. It somehow transcends all reality tunnels or is the ultimate reality. Uh, and, and that's the part that uh, feels both uh, contradictory but also really um, profound in some way mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. about Buddhist practices that it makes that claim to have the ultimate, you know, to, to give you some glimpse at something beyond uh, the stories. Sure. Um, yeah, I think about that sometimes with, you know, there sometimes in, in Buddhism we'll characterize it as like there's, um, you know, we view things through the lenses of passion, aggression, and ignorance. We like some things. We don't like others. We don't react to some. And so um, you could say, you know, our particular reality tunnel, um, which is in some ways individual to us, but then in some ways there are, you know, societal tunnels. Right. There are collective yeah. tunnels within a group. Yeah. Um, that, um, yeah, there's this, there is this idea that it's preventing us from seeing things as they actually are. But I think what's interesting to me about um, 
the, the Buddhism and its practices, mindfulness being one of them, is um, how process-oriented it is and how um, there's not necessarily a landing point where you stop. I mean, sure, enlightenment, getting completely off the wheel, being completely free of delusion. But I think um, for those of us who are, um, you know, practicing for uh, an hour a day, uh, kind of changing that. Like I was talking about why I respect and admire and think a lot about science fiction authors because there's that syntax of thought that um, maybe opens you up to the way things are and maybe that only comes in flashes and uh, maybe the best we can do is increase the likelihood that we're going to have those flashes by um, kind of creating the causes and conditions of being with things as they are. Hold but on, yeah. I got a question for you. Sure. How are things are? It's it's one of those From things where like if you if you can talk about it, then that's not how they are, right? It's like that old <laughs> that old paradox. Um, but that. I would say from my experience, I have to constantly remind myself, and I think that mindfulness is a thing that uh, helps one do this, um, that whatever my current story about something is that I'm telling myself, especially when it's spinning off into kind of a catastrophizing uh, fantasy of what's going to happen, um, it's never how things actually are. Things never actually pan out as uh, negatively as I might think that they will, or as positively maybe as, um, I fantasize, but they do pan out. Things are happening. So how can I, um, begin to notice when the stories are happening and not demonize that process, but at least notice when it's happening and come back to, um, even for just a moment, trying to, be with how things are without grasping. But to be able to talk about that, it's already a moment that's passed. And it's so frustrating when teachers say that, but I'm, I'm finding myself saying it. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's so, it's, this is such a, I'm, I'm glad we're, I'm glad our conversation went here so quickly, but um, <laughs> uh, it's, it's, I find it so frustrating because I'll try, I try to express why I find it frustrating. Mm -hmm. um, I find it frustrating because I do like I, even as you're talking here, I, I have these moments. There are these moments where uh, you know the bottom the bottom drops out, mm -hmm. and there's just this. There's just this. There's just what's happening. Mm -hmm. You know, there's sound, there's sight, there's the body. You know, the, and even that is I'm adding already accretions onto the simplicity of what's happening. Mm -hmm. um, trying to categorize it and break it down, um, but that's the thing that's frustrating to me is that that doesn't those two realities of the simplicity of what's happening um, that can be tuned into or can be noticed, and then the, the simultaneous, the storying about what's right. happening, that I don't, personally, I don't see a way to get rid of the storying. The storying, right. it just is, it's as persistent as uh, the dissolving of story. Like mm -hmm. the, the birth of the story is persistent as the dissolving of the story or the, you know, the ending of the stories. And um, in that sense, I, I you know, I, I hear the, the frustrating part is hearing this, the story of getting rid of stories like David talks about. Mm -hmm. um, and, and when that's not seen as a story, 
You know, it's like, oh, that is, that's also a story. That's also a reality tunnel, you know, to think that if we just get rid of the concepts and we can just rest in some sort of permanent abiding way in um, this non-conceptual simplicity that everything will be okay. You know, everything will be, you know, um, what it is. Right. What do you think? And even that is kind of a story that we might cling to. And then um, I think about the way that, uh, you know, I'll find myself sometimes using my practice to try to, why, why can't I get to that place? I'm trying to make this thing happen. Oh, right. I should notice that I'm trying to make this thing happen. I, I like to think about, um, I'm, I can't remember which teacher brought this up. I might've been Ethan Nickturn in one of my first um, kind of mindfulness classes, but he talked about, um, you know, the way the brain is built evolutionarily to um, project into the future, to be able to predict threats, um, to take information from the past and be able to use that um, in this way that we were constantly escaping danger. And so we remember just enough to help guide our decisions, but we also have to forget just enough that we're not constantly living with the awareness of everything that has happened to us. And so there's this kind of that narrative creating in the brain. Uh, and I think about, you know, the fact that I love improv comedy, uh, you know, science fiction writing, things like this, good storytelling in general, it's a beautiful capacity that our mind has, that we've taken this thing that was an evolutionary trait um, used for our survival, and we use it to make meaning of the world around us, and we use it to create art. So it's not, I try not to think about it as inherently a problem, but the idea being that I should notice when it's happening. If I can at least start to notice when it's happening, that perhaps I'm cultivating the ability to um, rest in that space, uh, maybe not outside of the story, but at least between there's that idea of the gap. And I think about, I really like the author Charles Eisenstein and he has this great book, um, the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. And he talks about the fact that we're in this cultural space between stories. Um, and that that's considered in a lot of, um, indigenous communities kind of a very sacred place because, as we know from a mindfulness practice, whenever there's a gap, our mind kind of rushes to fill the gap. As soon as we find that place between thoughts or between narratives, our mind is like, wait, I got more stuff. I got some more storytelling for you. Yes, um, exactly. So to be able to hold the space for that collectively um, in this time where we're moving from that one big, uh, you know, it was never really the narrative for everyone, but it was kind of told as the narrative for everyone, this kind of American dream bootstraps, um, infinite perpetual growth story that I think we're watching kind of fracture. We don't even need to try to make it fracture. We're just watching it happen. Um, I think places like Twitter, one of the reasons I love Twitter is that you can most see those kind of dominant narratives, um, different voices are coming in to say, well, that's not my experience and here's what my experience is. So I think um, being able to hold the space in that gap, whether it's just in between my thoughts, whether it's, you know, all of us coming together culturally to hold the space and say, we don't know what the next story or stories are going to be. Um, yeah, that seems to be for me kind of the aspiration because I don't, I, I really can't imagine 
But like you said, it is, there is a kind of like this trans- almost transcendent idea of the space outside of stories that feels really seductive. Yes. Um, and having brief kind of touches or encounters with that, even for a moment, and feeling very expansive yes. um, and interconnected is um, you want to make that happen again. But then you're doing the thing that I think kind of pushes that away once you start thinking about it that way. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking of the term, you know, the, ter- the early Buddhist term nirvana, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that how that feels so good to notice a story and then for it to kind of dissolve, you know, or to, you know, to cease, to, to be mm-hmm. extinguished, you know, to use the, mm-hmm. the to, to, to go, to go nirvanic. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. And then it's like, oh, if I could just, and then the story comes up, if I could just, if I could just be here, <laughs> where, where? After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.